Uh, my name is Carl Grubaugh. I'm a lakesider. I'm a 6.30 lakesider. We usually hang right over here on this side, which by default we like that side, so we keep going to that side. Um, it's, a, it's a privilege, it's an honor, it's a little daunting for me to be up here uh, this weekend, but um, I thought, I, I see some familiar faces. If your kids have come through the middle school program in the last 10 years, they've heard me speak a time or two. Um, I spoke at uh, the high school um, houseboat trip three or four years ago, so I've done some speaking, but I want to introduce you to my family, if I can, real quick. Those of you who might not know who we are. So I've, I've got a slide coming up, and, and there they are. Um, my daughter, Lauren, on the far left is uh, 22, uh, just graduated from college. She's living and working in Los Angeles and going to grad school. Uh, my son, Connor, on the right is a student at Berkeley. He lives in a Christian fraternity. Yes, Christian and Berkeley aren't always independent of one another. It's been a great blessing to him, and so it's been a blessing to Tanya and I. Uh, Garrett in the middle is a 15-year-old high school sophomore. Um, he's become a practical only child, and who knew he had that much to say? It was, it's, been, it's been kind of interesting to, to see him blossom. It's been, it's been fun to watch that. Um, my lovely, beautiful wife, Tanya, who's uh, on her way. She's got just a little bit left with a pretty arduous set of requirements to become a licensed clinical social worker. Um, she works as an uh, intern counselor down at Sun River Church, and um, it's just a huge blessing to me. Um, I just have to tell you that I definitely married way up. Um, and, and there's another member of the family that I want you to see. That's Sonny the Wonder Dog. And Sonny knows which teams to root for. I'm a high school teacher. Uh, I've been teaching in middle school and high school and college classrooms for more than 30 years. Um, I just need to tell you that I'm way more comfortable with speaking to high school and middle school and college kids and teachers than I am to general gatherings of adults. So I'm a, I'm a little nervous. Um, maybe less so than last service, but, but I'm a little nervous. But there's lots of tips out there if you, if you speak before folks. There's, you can find suggestions. And one of the suggestions I found that I'm going to apply, if you don't mind, is that in order to write, try and deal with some level of nervousness, I'm going to picture all of you sitting out there as eighth graders. Is that, is that okay? And as long as you don't become rambunctious eighth graders, we'll be fine. We, we, should, be, we should be good to go. Um, last year, a little over a year ago, I, I had a little bit of a health scare. Uh, we had gone to Europe, first time for me ever. It was my uh, 30th anniversary for Tanya and I. Lauren was about to graduate from college. Connor had graduated from high school. Garrett had graduated from eighth grade. And we just said, we're going to celebrate. We took this trip. And um, on the way back for 14 hours with a short little layover in the middle of that from Madrid to Washington, D.C. to Sacramento, I was cooped up on a window seat and didn't move. Um, about a month later, shortness of breath, super high level of heart rate. Long story short, I got taken to Kaiser Roseville where they cleared the heart attack that they thought it could have been. It wasn't that, which was good news. But then they gave me a CAT scan and they came back and they said, uh, you have massive blood clots in both lungs. You have a pulmonary embolism. And that's not something to mess with. It turns out you shouldn't coop yourself up in an airplane for 14 hours. You really should get up and walk around every hour or so. Um, so clots formed in my calves and through to my lungs and grew and pulmonary embolism. And I found myself at that point asking some more significant questions than maybe I typically ask during the regular run-of-the-mill kind of day that we, that we all live. 
questions like these. Take a look. I saw Saving Private Ryan in uh, 1998 when it was released. Um, it was a powerful, powerful film. How many, how many of you remember seeing it or have seen it since then? It's an amazing film. It was universally praised, especially for the excruciating reality that it showed in the actual D-Day invasion. Um, but when I saw it, the scene that I was most caught and captured by was that one. And it was because of those questions, those big questions. Have I lived a good life? Am I a good man? But I was 40. My kids were 7, 3, and 1. And so I, I kind of put that back in the back and compartmentalized it again. And I went to the kind of questions that are significant when you're 40 with pretty young kids. Things like, how am I going to get these three kids through college on a teacher's salary? What do you do to clean up the vomit that happens when your kids throw up on the carpet? I, 
practical kinds of, you know, everyday sorts of questions. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, as I saw that, I didn't see myself as the elderly Private Ryan. I saw myself as the, the dad in the background who was the father of the grandchildren. Private Ryan, elderly Private Ryan, was my uncle's and my father. I've got an image of uh, the old family portrait taken in about 1932. All of my uncles flew in World War II. Uh, my Uncle Glover flew out of England, towed gliders full of troops that they cut loose on D-Day and in the days following D-Day. My Uncle Boyd uh, flew from India to China, what they called the hump. He was shut down, shot down at one point in a mission over Yawada, Japan, uh, bailed out in China. Two of his crew members were killed. He and his crew eventually um, escaped. He later died in a military mid-air collision when I was four months old and is buried at Arlington. My Uncle Burl, I, I think he's the cutest little kid, he, uh, he flew in Sicily and Italy, flew bombers in Sicily and Italy. And then my dad, over in the far right corner, he turned 18 two or three days after the atomic bombs fell in 1945. But he'd already been drafted. So he went in, he did 18 months as a weather observer in Walla Walla, Washington, got out, went to school on the GI Bill, re-upped, and became a fighter pilot, fought in Korea in F-86s. In Vietnam, he flew reconnaissance F-101s. And today... He's uh, the only brother that's still here, uh, 86, retired in uh, Davis with my mom. And that was Private Ryan. So we, we had, I, questions, we tend to com- kind of compartmentalize them. And the questions that we ask, I, they, they start getting asked pretty early. Sometimes they get there, there before even we can ask them ourselves. How many parents in the room? Do you remember when your very first was born? And how amazing that was and maybe scary and all kinds of other emotions? When our first was born, Lauren, um, she was butt breech and uncooperative. I don't think that's a contemporary personality trait necessarily. But we had to schedule a C-section. So we did the C-section, and I came in. I got to watch, which lasted for two or three minutes until I realized that it looked like they were going to pull Tanya in half. And I just got down behind the drape because she needed comfort. She clearly needed some comfort. But then Lauren was born, and they put this purple, bloody, screaming little child on Tanya's chest, and I was undone. I was undone by that. And if you're a parent, uh, you might remember that. I'm still a little undone. It was 22 years ago. But the questions I had, the questions that you had was, were, is she healthy? Ten toes, ten fingers. And boy or girl? A beautiful little girl. For our next two, it was easier for me, maybe not so much for my sweet wife, Um, Connor, we decided we're going to keep it a mystery. We don't want to know, boy or girl. But I saw the image. I saw what was coming. Little boy. For Garrett, we just said, you know what? We need information now, not mystery. Because another third child has implications on bedrooms and hand-me-downs. And we said, you know what? We, Doc, we don't want mystery Shoot straight, what, what do we got coming here? And we have, we have three. Um, then we get older, and the, and the questions start to change. They're still the parents' questions for, for a while. Are they, are they an easy or a fussy eater? Are they cooperative or, or difficult in terms of sleeping? Are they right or left-handed? Then a little older, they go to school. And it's, are they going to kind of be street smart, kind of savvy kids, or are they going to be bookworm kinds of kids and, and, and readers? And then they get to adolescence. 
And now the questions start, I think, to get a little more significant. Questions like, am I going to be a conformist or a rebel? I know who my parents are, but who am I? I understand my parents' Christian faith, but what's that mean for me? And then we get ready to get out of high school, and I think our questions become somewhat more practical. Am I going to go to college or go to work? If I'm going to go to college, two-year school, four-year school. Am I going to be a liberal arts guy, or am I going to be a science, math, tech guy? I was a calculus, um, I feared calculus. I was an engineering major, then I took calculus. And that's when I learned that I loved history. (laughs) (laughs) And then other kinds of questions that I think that we ask at that point are, you know, the practical kinds of things. Who am I going to marry? Am I going to go to grad school? What kind of a career am I going to choose? But I think those big questions are still there. We kind of compartmentalize them. We park them in the back, but I think they're still there. What really is the meaning of life? Is this all there is? Is there a God? And if so, how can I connect with him? And then maybe it takes, like it did for me, being 55 and making the amazing mathematical calculation that more of my life is behind me than ahead of me. Have I lived a good life? Am I a good man? So many questions. We're going to take a look uh, at a piece of scripture, a a passage in Luke chapter 7. And uh, last week, Brad talked about three keys. And so I just want to take just a second and set, the, set up the passage that we're going to look at by looking at his three keys from last week. He talked about if you're going to really understand Scripture, you need to know genre, you need to know context, and you need to know intention. So quickly, big picture, book of Luke. Genre, narrative history. Luke is giving us the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Context. He's the only non-Jew who has a book of the Bible. He wrote Luke. He also wrote Acts. And he's coming from a non-Jewish perspective. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. And so the context is he's not an eyewitness. He's not listed as a disciple. He's not an eyewitness of the life of Christ. But in a, the, the experts say that within about 30 years of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Luke gathers eyewitness testimony from people who knew him, who spent time with Jesus, he gathers that and he puts together this account. And the intention is that not just people who are from that Jewish tradition, but all people, Gentiles like him, understand that Jesus was about making available a relationship with with the God of the universe through a connection with Jesus of Nazareth. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. We're going to take a look at a passage that starts in verse 36. And and I'm going to read from a a version of the Bible called the Message. Um, I love the Message. It's it's contemporary language, and it it just resonates with me. And and I asked Brad, I said, is it okay if I use that? And he said, sure. So for those of you who are less familiar with versions of the Bible, the version that you have on a seat next to you, it'll sound a little different, but it's the same story. Starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, over for a meal. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down at the dinner table. Just then, a woman of the village, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them, 
and anointed them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was the prophet I thought he was, he would have known what kind of woman this is who is falling all over him. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, tell me. Two men were in debt to a banker. One owed 500 silver pieces, the other 50. Neither of them could pay up, so the banker canceled both debts. Which of the two would be more grateful? Simon answered, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. That's right, said Jesus. And then, turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, Do you see this woman? I came to your home. You provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She's forgiven many, many sins, and so she's very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Then he spoke to her. I forgive your sins. That set the dinner guests talking behind his back. Who does he think he is? Forgiving sins. He ignored them and said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus gets this invitation out of the blue. He's been preaching and teaching and traveling in Capernaum and then in a village called Nain. And he gets this invitation and he accepts it. He goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. And then this woman shows up, that woman. And Eugene Peterson, who's the pastor who wrote the message version of the Bible and translated it into somewhat more contemporary language, he calls her a harlot. But other translations don't identify what her sin was. They just say she was sinful. Whatever, the woman had a reputation. So my first question is, how does a woman with a reputation get in the dinner party? That just seems a little strange to me. That seems a little odd. So I did a little digging, and and here's what I found out, that in that culture in that day, it wasn't unusual for someone who invited an esteemed teacher, he would invite specific dinner guests, but then the house would be open, the home would be open so others could come and hear. And so the woman was probably not the only person who was an uninvited guest. And they would be able to come along and and listen to the teaching and perhaps listen to the conversation around the table. Um, And that was the norm, the cultural norm of, of that era. But what was very different and what was definitely not the cultural norm was that she steps from the sidelines and she steps into the story. That was very unusual. It would be a little like if I went to a Sacramento Kings game And I scraped enough money together or got some friends to help me out, and I bought a front row seat. Is there any problem with me being at the Kings game? Well, of course not. I bought a ticket. But imagine if I leap out of my seat and go on the floor and start calling for DeMarcus Cousins, hit me with a pass, I need the ball. That's a little different. Now, the kings have suffered enough for the last 10 years that initially the new ownership group might look at me and go, yeah, a little old, a little gray, a little paunchy, but he is 6'4". 
And they might go, until the ball gets in my hands, and I try and shoot the ball with my startling one-and-a-half-inch vertical leap. So maybe if it was like, you know, Sean Miller, it, it, it might be different. Sean being the big basketball player that I am not. But that's what this was like. She steps into the game in a way that just wasn't done. And more than that, she is sobbing tears and allowing them to just flow all over Jesus' feet. And more shocking than that, she undoes her hair, a very intimate act in that culture, and uses her hair to begin to clean the tears and wipe the feet of Jesus. That, can you say awkward? That was awkward. That was something that would have made all of Simon's guests and Simon deeply, deeply uncomfortable. But she's not done. She takes out a bottle of perfume. The text says it's expensive perfume. The commentators that I read said that could have been something called nard. I personally wouldn't name a perfume nard. But nard was very valuable, very expensive. A single pound was a year's salary, a year's wage. And she just begins to freely pour it on his feet. And the thing is, I just have to believe this isn't her first encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. I think that she has seen him in the previous day or two or three. I think she has seen him do amazing things because the story before this section talks about how Jesus heals people. And Jesus actually touches the coffin of a boy who comes back to life. And I imagine that she heard Jesus forgive people who were guilty of the same kinds of things that she was guilty of. And I think she realized in those days before this banquet that Jesus offered her the same kind of forgiveness that he was offering others. And she was just incredibly, deeply full of gratitude. And she had to come and express that. And, she, and it was worth violating all of these cultural norms. This, 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 I, th- I think when, when people recognize and they realize how powerful the grace of God is, how amazing it is that God forgives us, even when we are stuck in our worst possible places, and that's what sin is, is when we get stuck in our lives, I, I think that it's not unexpected that tears will flow. I think when we re- realize and look and see that that's happened to somebody else, that they are telling their story and Jesus has forgiven them, and they are celebrating that, it's, it's not surprising that tears flow. I think when you look at somebody that maybe you were quick to judge, and you recognize that you are able to experience that same kind of forgiveness, I don't think it's a surprise that tears can flow. Jesus' response to the woman, I think, is in many ways just as shocking. Because he just lets it happen. He just allows her to pour out her gratitude. But Simon, Simon is completely outside his comfort zone. He just, it's too much. It is too much. He's a Pharisee. Josephus is an ancient historian, and Josephus noted 
The Pharisees, who at that point had been around for a couple hundred years by the time of Jesus' birth and life, the Pharisees were the most expert and accurate expositors of the Jewish law. In other words, they did their very, very best to do exactly what a strict interpretation of the law required and to get others to do exactly the same thing as well. But they were selective. They were blind to the Son of God right in front of them. And not just blind, but they became Jesus' most bitter enemies. Jesus has some not kind words for the Pharisees. He says, woe, woe, woe unto you. You are hypocrites, you brood of vipers. And yet he accepts the dinner invitation. Even though he knows from Simon's body language or the fact that he's the son of God and he gets it, Simon is doubting who he is. He's not a prophet. And Jesus, I think, very gently turns to Simon and tells him the quick story of the two debtors. One owes 50 silver pieces. One owes 500 silver pieces. Who's more thankful? I teach economics and a little journalism, and I still do a little journalism on the side. I work a bit for the Sacramento Bee now and then. And can I tell you that this question is a classic softball question? It's an easy one. It's a hit it out of the park. Who's more thankful? And Simon says, well, he doesn't say duh, but he sounds sort of disinterested, and he says, well, you know, of course, the person who is forgiven more is going to be more thankful. So, so what's the point, Simon seems to say. And then Jesus goes right to the point. And Jesus says, well, what about you, Simon? You offered me nothing. This woman has offered me her tears and her kisses and her perfume. And you've offered me nothing. No greeting, nothing to freshen up with, no water for my feet. And then Jesus does the most shocking thing of all. He turns to the woman and he says... Your sins are forgiven. And all the people in the background, all the guests, they start chirping. Who is this guy? But if you read the text carefully, it doesn't say that Simon is among them. At least from what we can tell from what Luke reports, Simon doesn't say anything. And I think that's because Simon is blown away. I think Simon has realized Jesus has confronted him and, and showed him and told him hey, you think you can do this all on your own? You think you can obey the law and get yourself into heaven that way? You think that the Pharisee approach is going to get you where you need to go? But he says, You're not gonna, that, that, that's not good enough. And you doubt me as a prophet. And you're right. I'm not a prophet. I'm more than a prophet. I'm the Messiah. And I think Simon is just blown away. Writer Richard Rohr puts it this way. He says, I was a star Boy uh, Boy Scout and a Catholic altar boy myself, and I did them quite well. But they made me love me and not God. I think Simon the Pharisee has realized the jig is up. I have a confession to make. I'm a Pharisee. I can be elitist and arrogant and kind of stuck on myself. And, and to be honest, I don't think I'm the only one in the room. I think modern Phariseeism in some ways is the, the bent of the suburban American church. I'm proud of what I've accomplished. I'm good at what I do. 
So are you. Teachers and lawyers and doctors and business owners and accountants. And we drive nice cars. We live in nice houses. We've done well. And I'm not up here to say that there's anything wrong with that. But I think that sometimes we think that's good enough. I think that sometimes, if we're honest, we believe that, that we don't really need a Savior. What we need is a spiritual administrative assistant. Like Jesus standing there with a clipboard and a pen. What can I do for you today? Thanks, Jesus. I'm good. But Jesus says to me, he says, Carl, you are, you are not who you think you are. Because I see the inside. And I see the motives. I see the arrogance. I see the selfishness. Um, you, you don't need a, an administrative assistant. And I'm not that anyway. You need a Messiah. You need a Savior. You need God's only Son, the Redeemer, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He says, however, I love you. And I'm on your side. But you just need to know, Carl, you've got more in common with that woman than you realize. In fact, you need the same kind of grace and forgiveness that I offer to them. You are one of them. It just looks a little different for you, the way that that plays out. Right before the clip that I showed from Saving Private Ryan, there's a scene in which Private Ryan, in World War II, has come up to his captain, John Miller, who was played by Tom Hanks. And in the last moments, Tom Hanks is mortally wounded. He's firing a pistol at a German tank, fighting with his every last ounce of strength. When American fighter planes come over, turn the tide, and the Germans flee. And Private Ryan comes up to his captain, to Captain Miller, and says, you know, what can I do? And, and there's nothing he can do. He's mortally wounded. And then, in almost with his dying breath, Captain Miller, with Private Ryan down, listening close to him, Captain Miller whispers to him and says, earn it. Earn it. And then you fast forward 55 years to the scene that we showed, and, and I, I just sense that those words are stuck on top of Private Ryan's shoulders, and they've been camped there for 55 years. And they've been a burden. He's tried to do what he could. He's tried to be the good husband, the good father, the, the loyal friend, the hard worker. And he has, largely. And then I imagine Jesus coming up to him. The same way I imagine Jesus coming up to me sometimes going, you know, puts his arm around me and says, Carl, you... You, you can't do it on your own. And I have that same image of Jesus coming up to Private Ryan and saying, Private Ryan, you can't earn it. You can't. There's nothing wrong with working hard and being a good father. There's nothing wrong with any of those. But those alone aren't enough. Because here's the thing, here's the thing, Private Ryan. I've earned it. I've earned it for you. There's a passage in uh, Matthew, and I think it's my all-time favorite passage of Scripture. It starts in verse 28, and I'm going to read it to you also today in the message. 
Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Brad last week talked about the story of the prodigal son and said it's like a spectrum. There's the young son and there's the older son. That spectrum, there's lots of things that we can spectrum and, and put ourselves on. Things like extrovert or introvert. Likes math, likes English. My 15-year-old said, well, we were talking about this. He said, well, how about commits more visible sins, commits more invisible sins? That's not bad theology for a 15-year-old. Or that woman or Simon the Pharisee. Here's the thing. We're all on the spectrum. And if you're on that that woman, younger brother side of the spectrum, perhaps tonight you, this is a message that you haven't heard and you're beginning to realize God forgives you. The same Jesus who forgave that woman 2,000 years ago offers that forgiveness to you. And then he says, learn the unforced rhythms of my grace. Some of you tend that direction on the spectrum, but you've, you've come away from it. You've, you've been forgiven. You've, you've gotten off of that treadmill, but sometimes you slip back. And Jesus says, come along. I forgive you. I love you. I want you to learn my unforced rhythms of grace. Some of you are on the other side of the spectrum. You're with me. You're a Pharisee. Perhaps you're at the far end of the Pharisee spectrum and you've led a good life. But perhaps tonight you're realizing that that good life isn't good enough. It can't be good enough. The jig's up. And Jesus says to you, come alongside and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Or some of you are like me. You trend that way. You know Jesus has forgiven you. You know that that's the case, but you still too often, you live like you're still a Pharisee, like you're going to prove it and earn your way into heaven. For those of us who are, that's me. And my prayer, I, I, I... would offer it to be your prayer, is that every morning I wake up and I pray and I say, Jesus, help me to be humble. Help my work and my relationships to be about grace and not trying to prove something that I can't prove anyway. And Jesus says to us, I forgive you. I'm on your side. Come alongside and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. God loves us. He is on our side. And he wants all of us to come alongside and learn the unforced rhythms of his grace. And if we do that, we will have lived a good life. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for your grace. Thanks for uh, Lakeside that this is a place of grace, that this is a place that encourages people like me and people like that woman and that younger brother and helps us to become people who can experience your unforced rhythms of grace. What a blessing that is 
Thank you for, uh, for loving us. Thank you for being on our side. And thanks for your grace. In your name, amen.